Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Roger, cock-a-doodle-doo. We are reco- cock-a-doodle motherfucking dude. <laughs> this is one of the first times we've ever recorded in the morning. I literally just rolled out of bed, uh, and I am putting my bright red lipstick on to get ready for this fucking episode. How about you? Just in time for the sun to rise, Troy. <laughs> so we can take our chainsaws and elegantly spin in a field together. <laughs> and my black in our black negligees. <laughs> oh, I'll be wearing the white dumpy uh prom dress. You can have the black uh negligee. Oh god. Yeah, what a what an unflattering fashion choice for one Renee Zellweger. And let's be real, Troy. <laughs> can we mention two time Academy Award winner Renee Zellweger. <laughs> yeah, let's let's be really fucking transparent here. The only reason why this title that we are going to be covering today is worth covering to begin with is because somehow, some way, the fates would have it that the two leading actors in this film, a terrible film, <laughs> a film that is very hard to sit through, but we did it for you, the listeners, during Fan Picks It Week. We did it. We sat through it. Uh, Fan Picks It Month. I'm sorry. Week two of Fan Picks It Month. We will be covering the seminal classic, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation or the new generation? I don't even know. Which it one is, is the it, next Troy? generation. The next generation. I This movie, I own it on DVD, mind you. I have owned this film for probably 10 years. Still can't even remember the title. That's how little it stuck with me. Uh, the only thing I remember about this movie is the fact that a dumpling-faced Renee Zellweger, who fresh-faced, beaming, blonde, beautiful, still hasn't mastered line de- delivery yet in this film, but she's getting there. Uh, stars alongside a very attractive Matthew McConaughey. I don't care if this fucker has a robotic <laughs> leg. I don't care if he's chewing on the scenery left and right. He look real good in this movie. What oh, God. It's one of the only reasons to watch the movie. Um, it, I, it just boggles my mind watching this movie that you got two future Oscar-winning actors <laughs> in this. How? How? I How? I don't understand, but... You know what? I guess it goes to show for you people out there who are maybe aspiring filmmakers or aspiring actors. Like if you stick to your guns, <laughs> and you really you're really dedicated, and you just keep giving it your all. Eventually, roses will grow from shit, and such is the case with the demure Renee Zellweger uh, and her ever changing face, and the constantly handsome. Though finally looking somewhat leathered and weathered with age, but still looks good, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, the fucker holds up. I'm going to say he holds up, but I like him here. He's dirty. 
he's oily, he's greasy, he's crazy, and he's very over the top. And I wouldn't say it exactly works per se, but it definitely isn't the weakest part of the film. That's because this is a film that is absolutely riddled with Well, we got to thank our fan who selected this film for us or submitted it for us uh, to consider for selection, and it just happened to be picked. So Cameron... Cameron, we thank you so much for suggesting this film. Um, I am glad I got. Do we? Well, I'm Do glad we I got to revisit it. I hadn't seen it for a long time. I I remember the first time I saw this film, I fucking hated it. Um, but maybe maybe it grew on me a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to find out. We'll have to find out. But thank you, Cameron, for suggesting the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation. <laughs> Even though that fucking that that title doesn't fucking make sense <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever nothing about this movie makes sense and it i think the the biggest achilles heel it has is that it feels so separate and distant from the original texas chainsaw massacre which uh many of the things that worked in the original film's favor are, are completely stripped away here um and they definitely lean in towards more of a comedic sticky performance from some of the major characters especially from the character of Leatherface who by this point fans had already come to cherish and celebrate and love and appreciate him for what he was and they made a real bold choice here to go completely in a different direction and it does not do this character any favors at all no, it's almost like a completely separate character from the first three films there are flashes of the original Leatherface in a few minor scenes particularly like the first big chase scene with uh renee zellweger which i actually like but then uh, once he gets back to the house and once vilmer matthew mcconaughey's character shows up it becomes a completely different character and it's it's really puzzling because you know the director of this film kim hinkle he was the writer and one of the original producers of the first film so i, I don't know if he it, it's almost like he and I don't know. I mean, it's almost like he maybe somehow along the way, and I'm just speculating. I really have no clue. Like had a beef with Toby Hooper. It's like, oh, I'm going to make my own Texas Chainsaw movie and f- shit on the franchise. I'll show him. I mean, it just seems like how could somebody that was involved so heavily with the first film look at the script and, and everything and think this w- this is it. This is it. This is the sequel that I want to do to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, with um our recent podcast mini episode where we talked about uh, our personal top threes. I'm just going to say our personal top threes. We delved into. I'm not going to go too specific into it, but we did at one point talk about the idea of jumping the shark. And we talked about jumping the shark, and that that's something that comes up. I don't want to give away exactly what the topic is yet. I want it to be a surprise and be enticing for our potential Patreon listeners out there. Well, it's already it's already posted on the Patreon. So if you want to hear what he's talking about, we we just did a, a, a Patreon mini episode for July, and we talked about our top three uh, lamest killers in horror. Uh, and yes, we did talk about franchises that jump the shark or completely you know, from from one film to the next, do something completely different with the villain. 
Um, so a couple of our selections are examples of that. So if you want to hear that, it is on our Patreon for July already. It's patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. The link is in the show notes. Check it out. You can get access to that episode and hear all our thoughts and all of our previous mini episodes. There's about 12 of them now, and that's just $2 a month. So check it out. We also have full-length episodes up. We've covered some great movies that we wouldn't cover on the podcast, such as uh, we did Terrifier. I know that's getting a lot of attention now because the sequel is coming out in October. We did Return to Oz, um, Repo, the the Genetic Opera. There's a lot of good stuff on there, so check out the Patreon. Yeah, and this new top three is really fun. I I don't want to give away any of my personal choices, I'm going to say that, but the idea of jumping the shark really, I think, lands here because I think the director and the writer here wanted to do something that for whatever reason wanted to do something completely different some something completely fresh and it just went too far it went too far and it does not feel rooted in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre lore and it really for me as a fan because I am a fan of the, the original film um it's hard to watch this movie. Uh, any enjoyability factor that could exist by the end of the film is, is kind of leached from it because of just how absurd the movie gets and where they allow it to go. It, it doesn't feel authentic at all. Uh, and we're definitely going to get into it. We're definitely going to get into that in a lot of things because I had a lot. Of, I have a lot of gripes. But one thing you did say is you mentioned there's like a chase scene with Renee Zellweger that you actually do enjoy. And I do want to say that this movie, for all of the issues I have, when comparing this title to last week's title that we covered, um, American Psycho 2, All-American Girl, that movie, very easy to mock, but overall as a horror movie, there was not a single moment over the course of that film that I could say, this is a standout, this was something that I actually enjoyed. This is something that I thought momentarily felt like a, a fine crafted piece of cinema. Uh, did not exist in that film. At least I'll say here that even though this movie, for the most part, I think is pretty atrocious. There are moments, there are glimpses here that seem to be developing suspense that feel like they're kind of going somewhere in a positive direction. And then it takes like a sharp left turn and it all falls apart. But I will say at least this movie does have a few moments where I'm like, God, if they would have only like stuck with this, you know, play up your strengths, stick to what you know, don't go like, it's like weird conspiracies, men in black, all these weird things we're going to touch on. Stick to what you know. And they didn't do that here. And it, it was a grave error. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. I mean, the opening shot of the film is the, you know, it kind of replicates the opening of the original film with the text on screen and the voiceover. Although whoever's doing this voiceover is not nearly as uh, impactful as one John Larroquette. Oh, no. Significantly less. Yeah, it sounds like they just probably grabbed the sound guy and said, "Here, read this." Uh, We do get a voiceover that tells us that uh, the there's a legend of a chainsaw wielding family out of Central Texas, and they were never apprehended. And for ten long years, nothing. We didn't hear anything from them. And then there was a, a couple of sporadic. Uh, incidents that happen. And I'm assuming they're talking about what happened in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and 3. And then for five more years, nothing. And then we get the date. It is May 26th, 1996. And it is prom night. And we get a, a very, very close up of one Renee Zellweger putting on some beautiful red lipstick, although she wipes it off immediately. Yeah, there's a lot of 
little moments with characters here where it seems like they're trying to like explore something a little bit further and they never really go into it enough to to make it clear exactly like what the intention here could be. And right here is an example of that. Right off the bat, you meet the character of Jenny. She ends up being the final girl. You have this moment in her like rural redneck bedroom <laughs> where she's putting on this scarlet red lipstick. I like to think it's a premonition of things to come for her and Judy, uh, you know, winning that Oscar and all them things uh, with them big red lips, uh, because that's the only color she had on that whole movie and Judy. <laughs> Overall, I think that they're trying to establish like that she's living in this environment, this household that maybe is potentially like abusive. Like you hear the sound of her dad in the background, like arguing with the mother. And then when they, when something like crashes, she immediately wipes off the lipstick, like scared for them to see it. Uh, it feels almost like they're kind of trying to go like a Carrie White-esque kind of route with her, but you get nothing else to do with it. You hear some of her backstory later, but you don't get to ever explore this character being in these scenarios where you really know like what her motivations are, what makes her tick, why she is who she is. You get a little narration from Heather about who the character is, but you never really see it at play. She's kind of just pretty much immediately thrust into the storyline. And so it doesn't do her character much justice. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I almost feel like the, the the Jenny character that we meet at the beginning of the film is like a completely different character. It, it, it just She shifts halfway through the movie. And I don't think it's like in an intentional way. I think it's like in a, just like a bad writing way did you get that feeling because you, oh, yeah. there's there's many films that do explore a character that has like some past trauma or a bad home life and then is thrust into a situation like this and then he it uses that trauma and that t turmoil to muster the strength to finally confront the killers i mean think of like um oh like you're next you know that character, uh, ha the the um, Shawnee Vincent character, has a whole backstory, uh, and she starts the film being very meek. And then we, when the backstory is revealed, she is able to use that as a tool to defeat the killers. It would have been interesting if they would have explored that with this character, because yes, it is very much hinted that Jenny is abused by her um, mother's boyfriend's husbands, but it's not like used as a tool for her to like stand up finally and be like, I'm sick of being the victim. I'm going to fight back. It's just, it's dropped. And the way she's introduced at the, the beginning of this film, like during this prom scene, when, when she pops up in the back of um, Barry's car, she seems like very meek and nerdy and like, but then it just doesn't go anywhere. No. Well, and that's, I mean, a big issue I think overall is in the writing of the script. I mean, the script is just pretty, god-awful beginning to end in the sense of the story the dialogue isn't necessarily bad per se but it's very disjointed and characters like motivations and their through stories kind of like jump all over the place you'll have a lot of characters who will have certain reactions or responses or will deliver certain lines and come up come off really wooden or come off really like out of the moment but it's simply i think because of how they're directed and how the scenes are unfolding. A lot of things don't seem like realistic responses to what's happening in okay. the moment. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is one of my big issues with this movie is the fact that people's reactions to what is happening or what's revealed to them fall flat. Like there's not one realistic reaction in this film. Like people will literally see dead bodies hanging from trucks 
and they're like, oh no. My God. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, your boyfriend is fucking hanging there, bitch. Have a come on, you're Renee Zellweger. Muster some of that Oscar worthy acting out. And and but no, she's like, oh no, you're scaring me. <laughs> like, oh my God. Okay, so basically it's revealed that Jenny is getting ready for prom after she wipes her lipstick lipstick off. She puts on the most frumpy fucking dress in film history. Who put her in this? The only positive aspect about this dress is that it is a white dress. And the only reason that I appreciate that is because this movie is so dark that like oftentimes they are in the middle of the woods in the middle of the blackness and, some of the people who are wearing like black suits kind of like fade into the background. You always see Jenny. She is glowing like a lighthouse. <laughs> like she is just always visible. It's an ugly fucking dress, but at least I can see her. So I'll say that. Like that was the one positive aspect about that frumpy fucking dress. But they're really trying to make her look like dumpy and uncomfortable because, you know, there's a character who here who comes up in a little bit named Benny, who, or is it Barry? Barry or Barry? It's, I'm sorry, it's Barry. It's Barry. Uh, who, yeah. All he does is dog on poor Jenny. Like, he keeps talking about how ugly she is, what a dog she is. And, like, I mean, come on. Renee Zellweger is, a, is an attractive woman. And, like, I, you, could try, you, could, you could try to put her in the ugliest dress you want to put her in. It still seems very awkward and, like, ill-fitting and doesn't make sense on her. But, okay, they're really trying to make it clear this girl is, like, a frump-a-dump. Uh, and that alone just doesn't really translate because of who she is. Uh, the build-up to this prom, they do try to, like, kind of tie in some of the classic Texas Chainsaw-like visuals, like the camera flashes, the audio of the the bulb going off. Like, you see, you hear that for a second. You see it when they're taking their, their, their uh, prom photos together. But they're really, like, grasping at straws here to try to be like, this is in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe, and you're going to know it. Like, there's a lot of things, like, they purposely throw it in there just to, like, slather it onto the story that otherwise has no connection whatsoever. Well, can we talk about her date? Her date is the little cutie patootie, Sean. Yeah, but you can't get a fucking line out. Oh, God. This, <laughs> this, this kid can, the... cannot act at all, nor can he deliver a chase scene. <laughs> Thank God he's not in the movie very long. Fun to look at, you know, yeah. but, uh, yeah, bless his heart, he tried. Uh, or did he? I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. He sticks out. <laughs> he, he sticks, sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> because, you know, let, the performances across the board, even though there, there are a lot of issues with, like, line deliveries not being appropriate i would say like the 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 performances across the board are okay however he sticks out real i mean there's this line delivery he has coming up that it's just i do i roll inducing i'm like dude are you talking about please mister (laughs) you're scaring me me. (laughs) yes that's exactly the line but troy i've got to say for as as like clunky and like at times underwritten some of these characters may be and how awkward the performances may be. I've got to say some of these random one or two liner cameo characters that we are introduced to (laughs) stick with me more than characters who are over the, like here over the entire course of the film. There are a few people we meet just within this prom who I'm like, give them a fucking movie. Give Miss Abbott. And her love for that, what I think is a strawberry that she's sitting there seductively licking on. Like, let me let me know more about her. You know who else I want to know more about? 
the dame in the red dress. The girl who she's got about two lines, but she makes them last for about four minutes, where she's like stuttering and stumbling and gasping her way through these two lines that she has. I'm like, who is this woman? Well, who is she talking about? Okay, she's so talking about Miss Abbott. Are you sure? Cause Ms. Yeah, because okay, here's what happens. So Heather, one of one of the two female focal characters, who's a pill, but I like I like aspects of Heather. I hate others. Heather comes out in her like frosted purple mini, big teased hair, straight out of the mid nineties, and she starts talking about her boyfriend Barry, and Miss Abbott instantly, upon suckling on the strawberry, she pops it out of her mouth and she goes, "Oh, I thought you two broke up." Being you know a teacher, prying herself into the student's love life, and immediately the red dress damsel who is apparently a friend of Heather's, is taken aback by this. And she proceeds to like give a performance that's something that's it's like along the lines of this. I, I just, I just, I, she is, she's doing it again. And she, she, she just, she just, she just, I can't, I just, she just gets, she does this. this she does it. She does. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I think she's going to do it again. She's going to do it. Again. You just got to tell her you got, don't listen. Do not, don't listen. Don't listen to her. Oh my God. And then like people could come in and she starts talking to herself about it. Like this woman, like give this girl an award. Not because she deserves it because she fucking wants one. Because I mean, <laughs> this could have easily just been like pass off dialogue, but this girl, she's like, I am taking this moment and I am motherfucking running with it in this red fucking prom dress. <laughs> it's a lot. She, she probably auditioned for the role of Jenny and didn't get it. So she's like, I'm going to ham up every fucking line. <laughs> she's I like, I, I'm going to show them what they could have had. <laughs> Fast forward to Renee Zellweger ringing, winning that Oscar and that woman, you know, is sitting there seething on her couch eating popcorn and Jiffy Pop with her six kids. She's like, that could have been me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, because we know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation, led to Renee Zellweger's Oscar win. The, the, the voters had this in mind when they checked her name for Cold Mountain and Judy. They're Long like, overdue. We are, we, are, we, are, we are giving her the award for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We'll just say it's for Judy. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's a lot. So uh, Heather goes outside looking for Barry, who she finds kissing this random horse-looking girl. <laughs> She's a rough looker. Like some of these extras, but here that's what I'm saying. Some of these extras really stand out. You know they just grab this girl out of a local, like, stop and shop <laughs> and they're like come be in a movie make out with this guy and she's like all right <laughs> and she's got one line but she's got probably more charisma than half of the cast um and yeah it's very i'm sorry if you're leaving heather for this broad like i mean you do not have your priorities right because heather's a heather's a pill we're gonna say she's a pill but she's a cute one I mean, she's got a tight little body. She's wearing that mini real well. Well, Barry is, you know, doesn't seem like he's quite the catch himself. Barry is, like, somewhat attractive, but he is such a fucking piece of shit, like, chauvinistic piece of shit pig, um, that it's so hard to find anything likable about him. And he has maybe one or two lines that he says that are, like, not despicable and other than that he's just constantly like slamming on women mainly jenny and uh downgrading his girlfriend like just talking down to her and one of the things that i really can't stand about this film and i think it's because it just feels so dated is honestly like the, the relationship between heather and barry because it's so toxic 
and it's so unhealthy and they're both rather awful to each other. I don't know. It just, I, I don't feel like this aged well at all. This, these are two very unlikable characters. Well, and it's, and you know, talk about toxic relationships as when we get there, Darla and Vilmer, good fucking grief. Oh man. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe this was the cusp of, you know, movies where they thought it was a good idea to make characters unlikable because, you know, we had that whole stretch of of slasher films and horror films where it went from, you know, having very likable, relatable characters. Think of like the early Friday, the 13th movies. All the characters are likable. Halloween. All the characters are likable. We love some Linda. We love some Annie, you know, but then. All of a sudden, like in the, it seems like in the mid '90s, late '90s, early 2000s, it shifted to like, oh well, we want to make these characters as unlock unlikable as possible, and that really sucks away a, a lot of effective effectiveness of the film because, like, I want to see Barry get murdered horribly. He like he deserved to be murdered way worse than what he was in this because he is a fucking chauvinistic asshole. You know, I would rather have, you know, sweet characters that I don't want to see die because it's it just it's a little bit more effective when they do meet their demise. It's not hard to figure out right away that, you know, Jenny is going to be the final girl, right? I mean, she's the typical final girl trope. So after uh, Heather finds Barry kissing this other girl, she gets in his car and drives away and he starts chasing her. He's like, give me my fucking car back. And she stops and lets him in. And, you know, he is very dismissive. He's like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. What? I can't even be with friends anymore. You're so fucking possessive. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, he was lapping on this girl's face all over her jaw and everything. We saw it. I don't know. This, this again, this relationship, very unhealthy. But, like, let's also talk about how Heather's reaction is completely, like, worrisome. She steals his car and presents, like, proceeds to, like, speed throughout the parking lot, like, slamming into things. And uh, she, this, I mean, she doesn't seem phased by it at all. And then he jumps in the car and she's just, like, stoic face driving. Like, she doesn't even really, like, get that heated with him. She's just like, like starts bitching with her high-pitched helium voice and i don't know it's just like i think their writing is some of the worst in the movie because their intentions are all over the place at one point she's infuriated with him and then seconds later she is saying that she is the one who who's in the wrong that the reason basically he gives the reasoning that that he's trying to make out with this girl is because if he can't have sex, which he's programmed to do as a man, uh, there's a potential that he could get cancer. And she like is like, you know, he's right. She's like, he's absolutely right. I'm wrong here. Shame on me. I should have sex with him. I won't do it. It's my fault. And it's like, girl, love yourself. <laughs> like, love yourself, Heather. God. Well, at, at at this moment, Jenny and Sean pop up from the back seat of his car. What the fuck were they doing in the back seat of his car? I mean, I guess where else are you going to go? He's already making out behind that that uh, the one <laughs> the lone pole outside. I don't know where else you're going to go around the school campus. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So Jenny pops up to to, to tell um, Heather that. That's not true. He's he's just saying it to make it your fault. And he keeps saying, oh, shut up, you fucking ugly bitch. What would you know about sex? Nobody wants to fuck you. You're ugly. You're a dog. And she's unfit. And she's unfit. She's like, oh, well, now he's just trying to change the subject. I will say I do like that Jenny. Here's something I'll give a, a, a positive little hat tip towards. When Jenny does have these moments of dialogue, she is unfazed for the most part. And she is also very like straightforward about the fact that in this case, Barry's a piece of shit. And she's like, she's like, Heather, treat yourself better. 
don't listen to him. Like, at least Jenny is not, she might be a, a bit of a wallflower at first. She may be written to be a bit of, um, a bit like standoffish, but it doesn't mean she's weak. Even in the beginning, she's not weak. She's very much willing to voice her issues with him and how he treats women. Yeah, no, it makes it, it makes her, her reaction at least is the most grounded thing in, in the, in the film up to this point, because we have all these characters just acting so questionable. <laughs> Yeah, it's irrational. Yeah, and she's the one that's like, hey, come on. No, it's not your fault. He is deflecting. He's trying to make it, you know, seem like you're the you're the one in the wrong when, when it's him. You know, and he's just very verbally aggressive towards her. She does hit a car and they speed off. I mean, she it's like a hit and run. Like, she hits this car and then they just keep, just, they keep driving. Uh, and somehow they end up... I don't know. This town can't be that big. You would think that they would know where they're going, right? Yeah. Isn't this their hometown? Yes. But somehow they get lost. They get lost. They go down this deserted road. And um, as they're arguing again, this car comes out of like nowhere and sideswipes them and causes them to go off the road. It's a big ordeal. They get out. The guy that was driving the other car is apparently gravely injured. Yeah. He's like, Laying on the ground, like, uh. and it becomes a big ordeal. It kind of it's the igniting issue of the film, which causes the characters to have to break up and go look for help uh, because they it, Jenny is insistent that they call an ambulance for this guy because he's going to die. Yeah, right before the accident happens, there's this moment, and I only bring this up because this is one of her few like major arcs of <laughs> of the film for Heather. The character of Heather, about a third of her dialogue is her rattling on about like serial killers and murderers. It's like something of an infatuation for this character. And it seems really out of place for the character, but at least they kind of address it. She brings it up at one point, but the first time you get an example of this, they're driving and she like out of nowhere turns to Barry and she goes, Barry, I just thought of something that's so cool. What if we all got into a wreck and we all died and then write a song about it? And and that's what like launches into them getting like T-boned by this car. But like, this isn't consistent for her. She's always making these really like aggressive comments about like death and murder and violence and and I guess it's supposed to be kind of ironic because it's because it's set in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe, and you know that they're all going to get killed. But yeah, that's like one of her few defining traits, uh, and it does become like kind of a, a dead horse that gets beat over the course of this movie because it feels very forced with her. Well, and then it becomes all for nothing because she she reveals something in, in a little bit about that. So it's like, why? Okay, so if that's the case, why did we have to hear ninety percent of your dialogue talking about how you think you're going to be murdered? And uh, yeah, it gets really grating, uh, especially like when they go off. Okay, so they hit this car. They they uh, Jenny, Barry, and Heather decide to go look for help, and they leave Sean behind uh, to watch the the other guy. And yeah, as they're walking through these this dark remote road, yeah, all she's talking about is, oh my god somebody's watching us. I can feel it. Oh, we're going to be murdered. Somebody's going to jump out and kill us. Oh my God. I, I, I know this. I just have a feeling something's going to happen. We're, and it, it's like literally five minutes of her talking about this. Yeah. One of the little compliments I will acknowledge here, at least the wooded sequences, the, the setting in which they're uh, located these woods, very ominous, feel very authentically chainsaw, uh, heavily fogged. I mean, 
I I don't think I've seen a movie with this much fake fog in the background ever. Like you can't see in the distance. It's just walls of white mist everywhere. My issue, another issue with this, as you mentioned, kind of the woods and the setting overall, is this location does not seem all that remote. It doesn't. There's consistently cars driving by and everything. There's cars, there's motorcycles, there's a fucking drive through pizza joint down the road. Uh, you, you know, so that when they're talking about like, oh, the family hasn't been heard from for years and they literally live like <laughs> a block away from a fucking pizza hut. Yeah. How do you not know these people exist? Right. And another issue I have, and I know this might be a bit of a, uh, like, I might be really like looking for problems here, but I mean, you'll, t- I think you'll hear me on this. It's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The first movie felt dry and barren and brown and uh, sunny. The sun was always beating down. And it just it had like a very Texas feel to it. Everything about it felt um, like the middle of like a, a scorching hot Texas day. This movie's mostly set at night from the beginning. There's only a few moments set during the day. And at night, I mean, I got to be honest, it looks very much like what I would imagine like a Midwest forest would appear like, you know, like it just doesn't, there's nothing about it that makes you feel like you're in an environment down in South in Southern Texas. Um, it doesn't feel dry. There's no cactus like you saw in the original film. It's just trees, just trees and fog and a house. And that's all you get. And it just doesn't feel uh, really rooted in it. Like every every other film, I would say, within this franchise for the most part, really embraces that. This movie does not, it does not try to make you feel like you're in a specific area or even really maybe remotely close to the original location to begin with. It, it feels very separate and dislocated. Yeah, they, miss, they must be in eastern Texas where it is more lush and green. Uh, maybe they moved from the central Texas area to East Texas. There is a nod, though, I will say, because I, I lived in Texas for a long time. Anybody that's from Texas will know there is a nod uh, in this film or a little uh, background scene that lets us know that this was filmed in Texas. And it is the HEB grocery store sign. Because <laughs> HEB is a grocery store chain that is unique to Texas. And there's the scene where Darcy's in the, or Darla's in the drive through picking up her pizza. And there's an HEB in the background. So it was filmed in Texas. It just must have been maybe more East Texas. Anywho, so yes. Yeah, so the group, they speaking of Darla, they stumble upon her office. I guess she's a real estate agent and she just has this like office out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. It's very odd. Yeah. It's so weird and definitely not in any way intimidating at all. No, that's what I'm saying. There's a lot of like businesses and people around this location. Anyway, so they go in, they, they tell Darla to call if she'll call help, call for help. Um, And she ends up calling Vilmer, who we get introduced to here in a bit. But Darla is a character herself. She is, I mean, her defining trait when we first meet Darla is she's awfully proud of her tits. I mean, <laughs> I mean, to the point where like somebody throws a br- random brick through their window and her response is to go flash her tits. Well, on. she even said she's like, <laughs> the reason she's like, those high school boys always do anything to get me to flash them. I'm like, so you do you take you a brick that comes through the window and, and you oblige, you appease them. And she's like, look at them and weep. And it's like, that's what they wanted. They're, they are happy. They're going to come back and cause more mischief. She seems okay with it though. I will say Darla, 
does not seem in any way appropriate within the Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe, uh, especially no. as a villain. But I like her as a character. I just don't want her here. Like, she's fun. She's charismatic. She's got a lot of personality. She's flirtatious. But this movie just doesn't lend itself to this kind of character at all, especially within being one of the antagonists. She's very well presented. She's wearing this fancy purplish suit and looking all sexy with her big teased hair and a face of makeup. And um, there's nothing intimidating about Darla. She's definitely charming, if anything. Um, and I'm sure they use her as kind of bait to lure certain people, uh, similar to kind of the setup from the original film, because, you know, there was the separate kind of setup with the gas station. So she's clearly the equivalent of that. But she's just very tame and she's very attractive. And there's nothing about her that puts fear in my heart, you know? Well, especially she doesn't really. Yes, she's a villain, I guess. But she's not like. Yeah, she's not maniacal. She doesn't really do anything to like cause harm to anybody. She's just there to kind of witness it and go along with it. Uh, and definitely, yeah, I like to lure people. But like, other than that, like, yeah, she's not intimidating. You know, I mean, goddamn, we get this thing where she picks up the stick and like <laughs> taps Heather with it in the most demure way possible. Oh yeah, she's not. She's not an intimidating force at all. No, and then like we we don't ever find out kind of what happens with that character. It's it's just a weird choice. Yeah, it's like she's plucked from a completely different movie, yeah, a universe, and set into this one. But she does call Vilmer, who we are introduced to because the next scene is his tow truck pulling up. Poor Sean is out there with this guy that's on the ground that looks dead, and Vilmer is none other than Mister Sexy Ass Matthew McConaughey. Honestly, looking probably the best he's ever looked. Yes, which is yes. which is so strange because his character is so fucking obnoxious, um, and so again, not right for this film. Like they really were trying to create their own family structure, um, uh, similar to what existed within the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But this is where I feel in one aspect, they jumped the shark. They went way too big. The reason the original family in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre worked is because they were all very off and all very strange. And sure, The Hitchhiker was written to be a bit um, more manic and, and uh, mentally unstable than, than the others per se. But overall, like they were all just kind of just creepy, normal, greasy, oily looking men. These fuckers, one of them's got a robotic leg, one of them is spouting off Confederate one-liners, Leatherface is now suddenly wearing gowns. Like, they really took it, and they, like, every every character, they're like, what can we do to make this character, like, someone similar to that character from the original movie, but bigger, and weirder, and just more, like, extreme. And it really doesn't do the film any good. Like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is scary because of its simplicity. It's people being killed with chainsaws. That's it. <laughs> this this Vilmer character is a big reason why this film doesn't work, um, particularly as a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, right? Why would you think it was a good idea to, to make a completely different character the main antagonist of a texas chainsaw massacre film to the point where you shift leatherface to the background and make him a whimpering cowering pussy basically 
it, it makes zero sense. And I think that is the main issue with this film. And it, and I think that's the, the criticism that this film rightfully gets because it cannot feel like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie when Leatherface is not the main protagonist or at least in the first film, the other members of the family, they were like working together. You know what I mean? Like there was a common togetherness of what that family was trying to accomplish. Think of the scene um, around the table with, with Marilyn Burns. They're all in it together. You take this Vilmer character and now he is the primary villain and everyone is scared of him and everyone listens to him and it just doesn't work. It's not a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. It's a Vilmer, the greasy tow truck driver film with a great ass film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd still, I, yeah, I'd oh, let him, I'd let him wrap that eat my dinner off of it. Oh, <laughs> he's, yeah, he's a hottie in this. God damn. God, uh, that ass looks so perky. I do, but building off what you just said, Troy, I, I need to expand across um, off of that because I think let's just call out the elephant in the room right now. We're already touching on it. The biggest gripe with this movie overall and in making Vilmer, the main antagonist with the most motivation to to be so they really strip this movie of pretty much any key scenes that include chainsaw there are two moments in this movie that include a chainsaw and they neither of them are really major there's a chase sequence and then there's a finale sequence no one is killed with a chainsaw there is no massacring done involving the chainsaw. It's simply there for effect and intimidation. But because Leatherface has stepped back significantly, significantly to a secondary role, the title, being the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you come in with an expectation, and this movie simply does not meet the expectation whatsoever. No, it yeah, I mean that's that's the main issue with this film is, is yeah, it's not it just doesn't feel like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film and that's something that at least all the other sequels and remakes and reboots and whatnot at least they got that part right. And and can we also acknowledge this film has an extremely low body count as well. I mean, there's a whole lot of screaming, a whole lot of chasing, a whole lot of yelling, but murdering there's not a whole lot of that. So as Vilmer shows up, Sean is there and Vilmer kneels down to the guy on the road and, and Sean's like, is he going to be okay? And Vilmer's like, no, he's dead. And Sean's like, no, he's not. He was just talking in his sleep and like Vilmer's grabbing his neck and he's like, nope, he's dead. <laughs> and Sean's like, are you sure, mister? And I don't know where Vilmer grabs this poor guy's neck and snaps it. And he's like, well, he's dead now. Uh, and he proceeds to like, Sean's reaction to this is just like to go, Oh no. And back up. <laughs> and Vilmer's like, Sean's reaction, Troy is to back up past the, the running pickup truck that he's leaning against. Why didn't he get in? Why don't you get into the vehicle and drive, run this guy over? Like It's right there. Vilmer's like, you can run, but it ain't going to do you no good. And so, yeah, this has to be the most ridiculous chase scene in film history. Sean literally runs down the middle of the road. It's very lackluster. As Vilmer gets in the tow truck and, and follows after him. And 
I don't know. I would think it would probably be a better idea if you're getting chased with a tow truck to run into the woods. Run into the woods. There's woods on either side of you. Trees. Trees everywhere. Instead of staying in the middle of the road. Uh, And then there's the scene. I can't say this without laughing. The scene where Vilmer pulls up next to him and Sean's like, please, mister, you're scaring me. I'm like... He's like, you don't even know how to be scared yet. (laughs) (laughs) You just saw this guy snap another dude's neck and you were being so fucking nonchalant about this whole thing yeah this man Uh, clearly wants to kill you (sighs) i think it'd be beyond being scared i mean you're a uh, he looks like to be a a pretty fit little high school boy and he's like just running in a lagging pace to the point where he has to he's only run like five feet and he has to stop to catch his breath (laughs) he must be asthmatic because it's literally like it's like it's like a light trot the entire time, like oh maybe God. a jog. Uh, and the truck is just like kind of slowly driving alongside him. And then he stops. He's like wheezing. Like, yeah, it's it's extremely anticlimactic. Uh, he's like, there's no he's tension like, at all. He's like, give me a chance, <laughs> bitch. You have a chance. Run into the fucking woods where the tow truck can't come after you. Anyways, it results in the tow truck. Uh, Vilmer r- running him over <laughs> and backing over him a bunch of times. At least this kind of looks cool. Like I will say, like there's a few shots in the movie that um, are visually somewhat well executed. And while you never ever see the body or the gore in this movie entitled "The Texas Chainsaw Massacre," uh, there is very little gore to be seen. But you do get the visual of the truck going back and forth over the body, and it has all these lights on it, so they're just like beaming all over the place through the mist, and that looks kind of cool. I mean, it, it's it's a rather effective visual, but without any of the gore, without any of the violence, like what's the purpose of making this? specific title you know well the other three continue down the road and all heather is doing is bitching she's bitching about her feet hurt she's bitching about how they're going to be murdered um and again in the course of them walking down this supposedly remote location where this family hasn't been able to be located for years we get a truck that drives by we get a motorcycle that drives by so how fucking remote can this place be Uh, that just gets to me because the other films especially part one you that that felt very remote like you knew they were out in the middle of nowhere you know and even in part 2 that abandoned amusement park seems very remote this is like literally in the middle of the city and it just it just it just adds to the i don't know non-effectiveness of this film knowing that they're so close to everything i mean they're close to a fucking HEB you know come on so as this car drives by, it doesn't stop. So Barry and Heather decide they're going to go follow this car up this driveway while they abandon poor Jenny, who is wandering around the woods by herself. And we get this garbage bag jump scare. This garbage bag flies in her face and, and scares her. I've never seen a garbage bag jump scare in a film. So, hey, give them props to that. No, but it is kind of funny. I will say, like, uh, it's not a great moment, but I was like, okay, like, <laughs> it's a self-aware kind of moment where they kind of have some building suspense and they gave us, like, a startle scare. So, like, it's not the worst part of the film. Uh, but when we're searching for things like this to get us through the movie, it's definitely not doing the job, you know? Uh, and now we get some attempt at character development with Jenny or I'm sorry, with Heather and Barry as they're walking down the driveway where she's talking about, she tells him that she's a bitch. 
that she knows she's a bitch. And if she was, if she wasn't a pussy that she'd be more like Jenny. Yeah. And this is when, this is when we get some story about Heather telling Barry that, you know, Jenny actually people think she's, she's, you know, meek and mild, but she's actually not. And that she's been through a lot because her mother goes through husbands like water and each new husband always attempts to like come on to Jenny and, 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 you know, try to like basically sexually assault her. That's problematic. I mean, I'll give her that. That's problematic. I will say, I think that Heather, here's my issue with Heather. She's not awful, but she has this really like flat delivery. Her voice, the way she speaks, like everything she says, she's like, I'm a bitch. You know, I'm just a bitch. And that's just who I've always been. And if only I was more like Jenny Maybe I know how to stand up for myself. And like she she has like no energy in her voice. There's no life in her. But it's also like, it's not like she's necessarily doing a bad job. In fact, there's a scene later on when she actually kind of kicks ass. She she really gives her all in in a certain scene. But again, I think maybe she just wasn't directed well. I really feel like this actress wants to be Christine Taylor like Marsha Brady and the Brady Bunch movies, really bad. Like this is the kind of energy and overall effect I think she's going for, and she just doesn't hit it at all. But Heather has some moments that I, I enjoy, and I do like that they for making her the token bitch character, she is rather defensive of Jenny, you know, her female counterpart, her friend. Um, and I, I do appreciate that about her. She only speaks highly of Jenny. She only really says that she wishes she was more like Jenny. So I like seeing that from this character. As Barry is constantly calling Jenny a dog, she Heather does be like Heather does stick up for her. Heather says, Oh Barry, she is not a dog. In fact, I have her in PE class and when I, I've seen her naked and she has a rocking body. And Barry's like, oh, oh yeah. But then this is when Heather also met, mentions that the only reason she talks about like Serial killers and being killed all the time is for attention. I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't land very well, you know, because this entire time she's been 90% of her dialogue has been about being killed by a serial killer. And then we find out she's saying she just does it for attention, but she's with these, she's, she's with friends. Like, why does she need attention? Why did we have to listen to her spout all this garbage about how she's scared and she feels like somebody's watching her? I don't know. It, like I said, it's just kind of weak week writing. They get to the house, which this house doesn't look nearly as intimidating as the house houses from the other film. This just looks like no. a random like rundown house you'd see on the side of a of a road. But they want it to be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house story. Like I will so say this. Bad. So bad. It's definitely the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house light. But if you look around, like the layout is like at times kind of similar. A lot of the decor is taken right from the original film, the hides on the walls, the little rooms with cages in them. Even there's like the swing chair, but it's on the porch, you know, but you could tell they're like, okay, let's see what house we can find that looks the most like that house. And let's try to like play it off. Like it is the same house. It just clearly is not. They knock on the door. Nobody answers. So Heather tells Barry to go around back to see if there's a, you know, a back entrance or see if he can find anybody. So he does. And while he's doing this, she sits on the porch swing and is just kind of chilling there when all of a sudden the big hulking figure emerges behind her and it's Leatherface and he keeps trying to touch her hair and she like is batting his hand away like she feels like it's probably like a flyer mosquito. 
Uh, and then there's this moment where he kicks a broom over and she hears him. She gets up and turns around and sees him and screams and then Leatherface screams back at her. This is the closest to what I would say is um, capturing the energy of the original film. I would s- Yes. Yes. I would say like the next. Okay. So I will give the film this. The next probably 10 minutes of this film. These this th- from this point till uh, Renee Zellweger's chase scene ends, so about ten minutes of the film. Really, I do, I feel like the energy is there. It really does feel like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. Yeah, yeah, but just for ten minutes. And I gotta say, for Heather, this moment specifically is her shining moment because you know she has the moment where she turns, she sees him, she reacts, he reacts, and then in traditional chainsaw fashion, very similar to Pam's sequence. In the original film, he grabs her around the waist, he lifts her up, and it is extremely physical. She's kicking her legs, she's screaming, thrashing her teased hair, she's you know punching at walls, doing anything she can to do get to do to get free, and she manages to for a second. She she locks herself in a room, and he fucking saws right through the door or busts through the door. I'm sorry, he doesn't bust out the chainsaw yet, but he he kicks the door in and, and he manages to grab her. And um, it feels very brutal, mm-hmm. very intense. Uh, this movie doesn't have a lot of moments like this, but I will say for for a moment it hits like a fever pitch, and it feels really raw. And I do appreciate that. And while this is happening, Barry has gone around the side of the house because um, he's looking for a rear entrance, and there's a figure that appears who pulls a shotgun on him and, and starts threatening him for being on the property. And at first Barry's trying to like, you know, appease him and be like, Hey, calm down, man. You know, we just had a car accident. We're looking for help. And it becomes pretty clear that this guy has no interest in helping him. Uh, and so when the screams start being heard, he doesn't really seem to care. It doesn't phase him. If anything, uh, it, it becomes all too clear that he's kind of in on all of this. Yes, this is the character of W, and I will say, at least in my opinion, this is probably the most disposable character um, in any horror film I've ever seen. Like, the guy literally has nothing to do. Now, he, all he does is spew these, like, kind of one-liners that are Confederate quotes uh, from famous, like, soldier figures and, and generals, and that's it. He's not intimidating. I mean, it's I don't know what his purpose is. I guess he's part of the next generation, but... Um, I got to say, I'm not a fan of this generation. Anyway, so yeah, so Barry, he uh, he makes he forces Barry to go into the house with the shotgun. And of course, Barry does do something really smart. He goes into the house, but he immediately shuts the door and locks W out of his own house. Uh, in the meantime, Leatherface has shoved poor uh, Heather into the freezer and he, he locks her in the freezer. Uh, there's a moment that's kind of comical because he puts her in the freezer and she immediately like for three times in a row is just able to push the, the freezer door open to try to get out until he realizes what she's doing. So he sets this big, heavy metal like pod or something on it so that she can't get out. Yeah. And if you look around this room, this is a moment specifically where they're like, okay, we got to make this house feel as Texas Chainsaw Massacre as possible. So it has all of the key things. It has the cooler. It has the meat hook. You see it. It has the long hallway. It doesn't have the sliding door like it did in the original movie, but there's still the long hallway. So, but somebody can step out out of nowhere and, you know, maybe meat mallet somebody to the head, which does happen because for a moment, it does kind of follow in the same footsteps of some of the classic moments of the original film. A lot of the things that happen here are mirroring things that happened in the original chainsaw. 
Oh, absolutely. Like, cause that's why I said this is, this is like the 10 minutes of the film that really feel like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Uh, Barry gets in the house. He's walking around. You know, we see more of the house. He goes into the bathroom to take a piss. And as he's peeing, you know, he zips up, turns around, and he sees that there is this rotted, de- decaying body laying in the bathtub. Uh, so he backs out of the bathroom. And as he gets out in the hallway, lo and behold, Leatherface is behind him with a giant hammer and bats, bashes him in the head with it. I got to say right here, Troy, that this is a moment when we talk about characters whose reactions and intentions seem completely out of place. Barry gets himself in the house. After hearing Heather screaming her head off, he gets inside, he starts walking through the house calling for Heather, and he seems very nonchalant. He finds a bathroom, he goes in and he starts peeing, and he's like, he's calling over his shoulder to Heather as though he like is not concerned for her well-being and it's like man a dude just pulled a shotgun on you and you heard your your girlfriend screaming bloody murder if i were this guy i would be tearing through that house looking for her in everywhere not worrying about pissing if i'm gonna piss i'm gonna just piss myself at this point because i'm so fucking scared this guy's so cool as a cucumber until he sees the body in the tub so and then he kind of starts to give a proper response but it just doesn't seem like it makes sense uh because you could very much hear her screams ongoing screams for a moment there another thing that you know speaking of screams that i want to point out is after all this wraps up heather's in the cooler uh leatherface has a moment where he starts to break down and scream very similar to the moment after the initial attack in the original film where you saw leatherface start to break down throw things around the kitchen grunting you know, in his own way, screaming, but it was very like animalistic in the original film. Here, Leatherface has a response that is just like a shrill, loud screech. He just starts kind of screaming at the top of his lungs. Nowhere near as intimidating or terrifying as the initial mannerisms and vocals of the original Leatherface. This guy just kind of grips the sides of his face and screams his head off. And right away, right off the bat, he starts to read very weak and very um, affected, uh, emotionally affected by what he's doing, but not in a way that seems at all threatening or foreboding or maybe like like a, the original Leatherface seemed like he had a real like mental discomfort with what he had to do. Here, this guy just kind of just like, starts breaking down and shrieking and it, it seems very um honed in and like screaming just for the sake of it do you know what i mean yeah yeah i i totally totally get it and then after he, he has this breakdown what's he do he grabs uh, heather out of the freezer and hangs her on the meat hook a la pam in the original film very similar to pam though i will say in this moment heather simply does not even come close to capturing the um expressions of fear that Pam portrayed in the original. When when Pam goes on that meat hook in the original movie, there is a moment where you see it like you think it goes into her. There is a moment where she loses her breath, her eyes go wide, and she is just, the pain completely overtakes her. Here, Heather's just like, oh, and I do love the visual of her little like body hanging off the meat hook with her feet dangling. Like it looks cool. But um, it's just nowhere near as, as raw as the original film. No, not at all. Jenny is is wandering around the road by herself when Vilmer pulls up with his tow truck and tells her to get in. He's very aggressive about it. 
Um, and she is, you know, she's she's doing the smart thing. She's like, well, are you the one that took those cars off the road? Where's Sean? And he's she, he's like, well, if you want to know, get in. Ultimately, she gets in the, the vehicle with him. And once he or once she gets in, he begins to <laughs> just say the most ominous shit. He's like, you know, in this day and age, you shouldn't get in the car with strangers. And then he's like aggressively begins to tell her to look behind her. And she's like, you're scared me. He's like, oh, you want to be scared? Look behind you. Look behind you. And she's like, oh, no. And he's like grabbing at her and shit. And it, it, I mean, this escalates very quickly. Yeah. Well, right when he pulls up. Like, right when he pulls up he and offers her a ride, he is ominous. And he is not being subtle about it. He is instantly suspicious. And against her better judgment, she gets in the vehicle. But I'm like, listen, girl, if I were you, I just would be like, absolutely not. There's no way. Because she's like, where are my friends? Like, did you move the vehicles? And he, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe I did. Like, he's making all these like kind of like ominous lines to her, like hinting hinting at maybe or maybe not you know he won't give her a clear answer and to me i'd be like go fuck yourself man with your creepy ass fucking tow truck there is no way in hell so i don't know why girl gets in the vehicle to begin with because he is not making himself seem at all likable or welcoming but hey at least matthew and renee are now together on screen yes yes she yells at him if he stops the car she will look behind her so he stops the car and he he's like he rips her glasses off her at one point and then he like literally grabs her head, forces her to turn around uh, and look behind her. And what we see is Sean and the other driver hanging in the back of his tow truck. And God bless Renee Zellweger. We know she's a great actress, but her reaction here even isn't all that, you know. Oh, God. Yeah, that's what she, that's all she does. Like it's literally your your boyfriend is hanging in the back of this guy's tow truck. Well, and also I understand that this tow truck glows like a UFO, but don't tell me that when this pulled up, if these two bodies are hanging from the top of it, like how did you not see this? Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, were you blinded by the light that much that you didn't notice it? You're outside of the vehicle to begin with. Like you're standing right beside it. If these guys are just hanging there, I'm it's not like they're hidden under a tarp or anything. Like they're fully revealed. So I just don't know how she managed to miss it. But I mean, for the sake of storyline, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, her reaction here is just not not appropriate. I would think I would be flipping my shit. But no, she's like, oh, no, I'm scared. And he starts driving away with her. She does jump out of the car. I mean, she does that. She There's a, she, there's a nice little effect of chasing when, when he's chasing her with the car. And she's doing the smart thing. Like she's running and, you know, uh, zigzag. And then she actually darts into the tree so that the vehicle can't get her. Now, if Sean would have done that, he may still have been alive. And Matthew McConaughey gets out of the tow truck and he he's like, are you sure you want to do this? Where are you trying to go? And he t- gets out a flashlight and it's like flashing it on her. And she's just like d- wide eyed, not responding. And he's like, okay, if that's what you want, it's up to you. Live and learn. And he gets in his little tow truck and pulls away. And you're like, okay, he's just going to leave her. Okay, whatever. And then you get the moment where she is just standing there in silence. It's, it's silent. You just hear the crickets chirp. We hear a noise, like a foot crunch, and she she kind of <gasps> gasps and backs up. And we get the moment, and I, I like this. I like this moment, and I like what follows it for like the next few minutes. We get the chainsaw revved up, and we do get, I got to tell you, Roger, it is a pretty damn good chase scene. 
Uh, I mean, Leatherface is chasing poor Renee Zellweger through fucking woods, through creeks. She does run into the farmhouse. She shuts the door. She darts up the stairs. And there is this... Is that a is it a mannequin? Yeah, there's a mannequin with like a sheriff's uniform on it, and she finds a gun. So weird, it's crazy. She's like, I'm going to use it, but of course the gun's not loaded. But I I agree with you here. This you know this chase scene is is rather good, and it's definitely like the Sally Hardesty moment for sure. Oh, because yeah, she goes downstairs as he busts in, and she tries to shoot him, and of course the gun is fake. So she runs back upstairs, and she does have her Sally Hardesty moment where she fucking jumps out the the window she jumps through the fucking window busts the window jumps through it lands on the roof this whole roof sequence is honestly impressive too i love i this. mean it's big I love they this. go big with this i gotta say like if they could have maintained this kind of energy for the whole length of the film this would be a hell of a fun film it really would and renee zellweger even this being one of her early 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 projects if not her first She's already showing signs of being a really strong performer, even if a few of her lines come off a, a bit under-enthused or wooden. Like, I, after seeing the script, I'm sure I would feel the same way. Um, but, but, you know, throughout this whole sequence, she runs through, like, a bog. She's soaking wet. She's uh, going up and down staircases. Leatherface is, though obnoxiously shrieking, still rather intimidating at this point because he's in his traditional uniform, like his somewhat his traditional costume with like the apron and so forth. So he still looks a bit like uh, intimidating, especially compared to what we're about to get here in a few scenes uh, when he looks like yeah. mama's family. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, but, uh, but like this whole sequence, like, you know, when she goes through that window, and starts scaling the roof, and he's like sawing through the chimney. She starts climbing the TV antenna. Like, I mean, girl is in it. She is working her ass off. Uh, she starts scaling across a telephone wire, and he cuts through that, and then she goes through the glass ceiling of a greenhouse. I mean, he puts this girl through the ringer, and she has a really nice, like, leading girl eventually what's going to be final girl moment here. This really is a strong scene for her. Yeah, it is. I'm telling you, it is a great chase scene. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, when she's scaling that fucking television antenna and he's sawing at her feet and then she, yeah, she jumps from the antenna onto the telephone wire. I'm like, bitch, you get it. This is actually a really cool chase scene it's like a combination of like the original film that you throw some halloween four into there i mean it's pretty damn good i'm like okay i really wish this film would have kept this momentum but it doesn't it doesn't no you know what else is really good though troy here in this moment is when like she gets out of the the greenhouse and then she like pauses and she looks behind her and he comes busting through the fucking glass wall. Like, fuck yeah. Like, that's the leather face I need. Uh-huh. Someone who is like an unstoppable freight train. That's intimidating to me. Unfortunately, Roger, it ends here because she runs her little heart back to Darla. So Darla cannot be that far from this house. It's so weird. No, Darla so she, is nearby. She runs back to Darla's office who, and Darla's there. And of course, uh, poor Jenny's freaking out saying, oh my God, he's out there with a chainsaw. He's out there with a chainsaw. Darla goes out, doesn't see anybody. So she calls, she calls, ends up calling D and says, you better get your ass over here right now. Or it's W, not D. <laughs> D.W., who the fuck cares? He's a worthless character yes he is a letter he is nothing but a letter <laughs> yes yes so he he shows up he shows up awfully quick right she calls him and he's literally there like in 15 seconds yeah these people literally must be like on the cusp of town because across from darla is like a gas station like they are really close to this place 
Yeah. So D shows, or what the fuck do I keep calling him? D? W. W shows up. And the first thing Darla says to him is, you should have brought a gunny sack. And he pulls out this trash bag and he's like, what's this look like? Green eggs? And this is when she's revealed to be a villain. She's like, well, what are you waiting for? Tie her up and put her in there. One thing I find interesting about Darla, Troy, is that even when she becomes a villainous figure, she's still very like comforting and tending towards Jenny. She's always telling her how pretty she is and offering her dresses. And it's weird because like Darla doesn't necessarily seem like she's ill-intentioned, but she's very much obliging what, her, what we find out her boyfriend who is Vilmer, requires of her. But overall, she doesn't necessarily always come off like the most villainous of characters. So it is definitely like a strange um, uh, way to present her character in that. And sometimes she's very ominous. Like, and sometimes she's obviously working on their behalf. And other times I almost feel like she's secretly trying to help Jenny. I don't know. I don't really know how to take Darla, you know? I could not figure out if her like nice behavior towards Jenny at certain points in the film was real or if it was her just being like, oh, I'm, I'm maniacal. I'm acting like I'm nice to you, but I'm really not. I'm really thrusting you further into this nightmare of a night. It just the character just there's not a lot to this character in terms of like what we as the audience discover in terms of why she's doing what she's doing, what becomes of her. It's just very odd. Um, anyway, so we don't know her intentions. At yeah. All. So W gets his cattle prod and starts prodding poor Jenny. <laughs> I like this bit though. We're like how he's just like jabbing her with it up on the couch and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And finally he like whaps her in the head with it and knocks her out, puts her in the sack. They end up getting her into um, Darla's trunk as she just casually goes through this drive through with poor Jenny screaming her head off in the trunk to the point where the drive through uh, worker is like, ma'am, you got something in your trunk. And she's like, yeah, you want to come out and see? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, no, I better not. My supervisor's here. So she literally in the middle of the drive through she's getting her pizza, gets out of the tr- her car, goes and opens the trunk and tells uh, Jenny to shut up. Jenny's like, I can't breathe. And Darla says, well, if you if I you know, put a hole in the bag. Will you shut up? And Jenny's like, yeah. And in the meantime, this cop comes up right behind her and he's like, ma'am, what you got in your trunk? If only Jenny would have fucking screamed. I know. I'm like, you have to hear that there's a guy like right there. Why didn't you scream? The sexy fucking cop. Yeah. Uh, my favorite moments with Darla are these moments, though. Like this moment of her with the, the boy in the drive-thru, where she's like, you want to come outside and see it? And like, she's like being so flirtatious. And I'm like... I don't know. Like, what if the guy said yes and he did come out and see it? Would she just kill him right then and there? Like, what is she really going to do about it? But she uses her flirtation several times to kind of avoid conflict with certain people or to get things to go the way she wants them to go. Um, And she plays these moments very well, I have to say. This character, when it comes to her being like a buxom, like, southern dame, like, she's got the shtick down I really like these like flirty little moments she has. Well, yeah. So uh, Jenny is not discovered in the trunk by the cop or anybody. Uh, Darla gets her pizza and goes on home. And as she's driving down the road, Heather is just randomly laying in the middle of the road. (laughs) How did she get off the meat hook? I mean, one thing I got to say about this household is they are not necessarily the most organized individuals. Uh, It's not a tight ship that's being run. 
Okay. These people are bumbling. I think that's a trait that's been kind of possessed by every family ever portrayed, at least within the original um, several films of, of the Chainsaw Massacre series, the first four. The The family has always been kind of a clusterfuck. Then when the remake came with like Arlie Emery and everything, they, they became way more of like a maniacal, like intimidating force. They've always been kind of loosey-goosey about how they go about doing shit. Um, and it's kind of part about what like gives them their charm. Though I will say this film takes that and it's just like off the rails. Like these fuckers are in no way intimidating. They have no idea how to abduct people. People are getting out left and right. Renee Zellweger manages to get away several times very easily. Like <laughs> I don't feel that the level at which they make them seem so haphazard and just internally destructive. This family is very internally destructive towards one another. Um, it removes a lot of the intimidation factor because oftentimes when things go wrong, it's because of how they're treating one another and other, the other characters are able to just get away because this family just keeps like melting down in front of you. So um, with Heather able to get away, like I'm not surprised because Leatherface is probably changing into his next ensemble. Uh, W serves no purpose whatsoever, and I, I I don't really know who's like really running the ship. I know it's supposed to be Vilmer, but he's always off kind of putting out fires and grabbing people in his tow truck. So for Heather, she's probably just been left hanging on this meat hook this whole time alone in that purple dress. I'm, I'm sure she's able to find a way to get off of it somehow because no one's paying attention to her. Well, Darla stops the car and gets out, and you know Heather's like, please help me. And Darla's like, okay, you just stay there. I'll go get a um, a blanket. And this is like the one flash of the one moment we get of Darla actually being somewhat villainous because she picks up a, a branch and <laughs> starts hitting Heather with it. But it's <laughs> what point does this serve? Because she's like literally just tapping Heather with this branch and Heather's like, don't hit me. Don't hit me. Well, I think it becomes pretty clear that Darla is not ever um, wanting to be one of like the physically threatening individuals within the household. She's not the muscle it, by any means. So in that regard, I think when it comes down to it, she's like, oh, like, I guess I should do this. But then she realizes real quickly, like, she's like, this is not, this is not my strong suit. I am not going to be the one that beats this girl to submission, um, which I kind of like admire about Darla. Like she is not in any way trying to be, the one that's getting the shit done physically. She'll save that for the boys. Well, yeah, she, she le apparently she drives around Heather and leaves her there because she gets back to the house where uh, W is chasing Leatherface out of the house with the cattle prod, prodding him. And now Leatherface is wearing a very uh, sensible gray mama's family wig with a, per with a pearl necklace looking just like, yeah, Ma mama Harper for mama's family. He is Thelma Harper. Um, and the, one of the, the worst aspects of this, I mean, the whole th thing is confusing. First of all, he comes out and it is comedic um, because nothing that he's wearing is like in any way um, meant to be scary. It's not like he's wearing like the, the scalped wig of a, of, of a woman's actual hair. No, he's wearing like a bad gray wig. And the mask absolutely is a rubber mask. Like, do not tell me that you're trying to masquerade this as like human flesh. If that's what the goal was with this, they grew, they 
fucking failed because it's the, the one of the fakest rubber masks I've ever seen. So there goes the leather face aspect. So now he's just standing there in a Mama Harper costume without explanation. They don't really delve into it. In a, in a way, I kind of like that because it's not like they make it like a thing. They're not like ever making it like a trans thing. Uh, it comes up like that he wants a new face at one point, but they never like use it against him. So I can appreciate that. But they also don't use it in any way to strengthen or define the character. It just exists and it's not really addressed other than that. No, and it's it's something we have not seen with the character before in the previous films. So it is a little jarring. Anyways, they get they get Jenny into the house, put throw her into the kitchen. Uh, all along as, you know, W is prodding Leatherface and Leatherface is crying and screaming like a little girl. It's grating. It gets really grating. Anyways, they get Jenny in there, put her in a chair. Vilmer comes in and rips the uh, plastic off of her face to reveal that it's him. And he even says to her, ha ha, I bet you can't believe what's going on, can you? And I, I don't know. I kind of lose. He was talking. He was telling her that the FBI has transmitters in the walls and that they're being watched. Then he sticks his fingers in her mouth. Yeah, once we start to get to this point is when things really start to go off the rails. As soon as Vilmer comes in and starts really establishing dominance and threatening Jenny is where this film becomes sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. Vilmer is a very self-obsessed figurehead within this family, and it becomes clear that he's trying to be intimidating. But there's a few things that don't do him favor. A, he has a robot leg. So like once you like realize that and find out how to use that against him, he is very easy to bring down. As we learn, this robot leg is, first of all, the robot leg is another jumping the shark, in my opinion. Not necessary, doesn't make sense. What is it made out of? It looks like it's partial rubber, partial plastic bag. Um, I'm not sure how it works. It has a controller remote, kind of like a television, uh, and it makes really strange noises. And like that's all I know about this robot leg. So there's that. Then, on top of the robot leg, you also have the fact, and we brought this up a few times because it's un- undeniable, but Matthew McConaughey is constantly a vision of beauty over the course of this film, glowing, suckling like a, like a, a candied pig on a rotisserie, just shimmering in the sunlight. He's heavily oiled and he's stunning. Tanned, bronzed, kissed by the sun. He looks like a Greek statue. And I love that for him. Like, thank God. But also, like, when you are trying to make this character a face of evil, it I'm sorry, it does not do the character justice. I don't know what they were thinking when they cast this character there. They're like, let's put the like the most beautiful man we can get in this role and then let's say he is extremely intimidating because to me if i were renee zellweger i'd be like you do what you gotta do if you're gonna lick my face lick my face like if you're if you're gonna beat me like okay can you zip that uh onesie down a little bit lower so i can at least see more chest while you do it because (laughs) <laughs> the intimidation factor is just not there. He can act as big as he wants. He can give the biggest monologues. He can go, oh, wooga, wooga, wooga over the top of his head with a gun and scream at the top of his lungs and all he wants. He's not intimidating. Oh, I agree. It is a problem. It's a problem, yeah, because he is he is absolutely stunning. And 
you know, they he tries to act maniacal. He tries to act, you know, intimidating, but it's it still just kind of falls flat. And even when he like it to intimidate Jenny further, grabs Heather, and from what I'm assuming, he opens her mouth and and I think he bites her tongue out though you don't see it because there is no gore in this film and then he like looks up and there's like blood like coming out of his mouth and i'm still like okay like i'd still i'd still get down and dirty with it blood and all like if you want to bite my tongue out at least let me finish first (laughs) and then do what you got to do but like yeah it's just not scary because he he is not scary he's beautiful I can't tell. Yeah, did he bite her tongue out or did he bite her cheek? I don't know. He bit something, but yeah. And of course, chaos erupts and uh, W prods uh, Jenny some more with the cattle prod before Leatherface carries her off into a r- random room. In the meantime, we do get the first glimpse that uh, Vilmer is extremely physically abusive to his girlfriend, Darla, because when she tries to console Jenny, he backhands her and knocks her, knocks her to the floor, something he does numerous times throughout this film. And she just doesn't really react to it. So Jenny is in the room with Darla and they are talking. Um, and this is, you know, when Darla is showing her soft side, she's telling Jenny how pretty she looks and not to worry about Vilmer because she tells Jenny he's really not as bad as he seems once you get to know him. He's just really stressed with his job. This is an ongoing theme with Darla. She's constantly defending Vilmer and like trying to make claims that he's really like a a good boyfriend when he's not, you know, actively killing people. It does definitely come off as kind of a, um, a case of like, was it, what is it when you like put somebody into a hostage situation and, and then they like become like accepting of it and they like learn to what is it uh, Munchausen syndrome is that it no, no it's uh, Stockholm Stockholm syndrome, syndrome. yeah <laughs> Stockholm syndrome that's correct yeah um yeah it's it she definitely gives off like a, a hint of Stockholm syndrome because she's so like okay with all of it but then like towards the end of the movie there is something else you learn about her that she hints at that's like oh okay, there's maybe more going on with her than we expected. But yeah, they have this really volatile relationship and I I am very thrown off by it. Sometimes it looks like he's about to kill her. Sometimes they're making out on tables. Like, it's all over the place. <laughs> the I, Yeah, the only, the male-female relationships we get in this film, the two that we get are very toxic. <laughs> yeah, and then she starts spewing off this bit to Jenny where she starts to claim that his job, like he works under the people that run everything and jenny's like the government <laughs> she's like no it's bigger than that they run everything for like a thousand or two thousand years i forget which one and as she's like rambling vilmer just busts into the room and physically like launches her out the doorway and it's like this is this is the kind of shenanigans you get with these two he's always throwing her by the neck <laughs> Yeah, he throws her. He throws her out of the room, slams the door shut, grabs poor Jenny, and holds a knife to her. Holds a knife to her throat, and he's like, "What stop? What what's stopping me from c- cutting your throat right now?" And she's like, "Because you want me alive for some reason." Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. She's smart. We got a smart one here. That's what he said. I like that we got so many Southern draws in this movie because, Troy, you do a mean Southern draw. You do a real good, a real good Matthew McConaughey. And I like to think I do a good Renee Zellweger. <laughs> so, so, with her mousy little voice. So, so yeah, um, he is, he is just, if, if the term chewing on scenery were like, 
a physical trait, this would be nothing but a pulp <laughs> at this point. The walls would be shredded. The, he Every line this fucker says is a big to-do in this movie. Oh, yeah. So after he says that she's smart, Leatherface comes back in, gets her, takes her back out to the kitchen. <laughs> Vilmer goes into the kitchen, and Darla's just standing there. She's like, you better be nice to me. And he just, like, slaps her across the face. <laughs> You're embarrassing me in front of company. She takes off her high heel. I got to give her some credit here. Starts beating him with it. She like throws him to the ground, and he can't get up. But do you realize the only reason Jenny is able to get like away at any time in this movie? The only time Jenny's able to get away is when they're fighting with each other. Like they're always fucking going at it with each other. It makes it so easy to get a one up on them. And she she's smart. She grabs that shotgun. Um, and tells them to all get down on the floor, including Vilmer. And he is not intimidated by her at all. In fact, he reacts by taking his pocket knife out and unbuttoning his little onesie, which, mm, yeah, show that chest, Mr. McConaughey, and slashing his chest open. And Darla's like, no, don't do that again. And he like slaps her again and knocks her to the floor. Uh, and then he pulls out two shotgun shells and shows Jenny that he has the two shotgun shells. In the meantime, Leatherface in his mama family get up is cowering behind the refrigerator, just whimpering away. Not doing anything. Not to doing help the anything. Situation. No. I do have to say, real quick, Troy, I got to say, if you and I don't do a fucking calendar shoot as Vilmer and Darla, we are missing out on an opportunity. <sighs> Not to cut in on this, but like me and those shoulder pads and you in that low zipped onesie <laughs> with that robot leg, I mean, we got a lot of potential with that. <laughs> carry on. Uh, carry on. We got so many, we got so many uh, photo there shoots to do. There needs to be about 70 months in the year because we got so many. You better, you guys better subscribe to the Patreon so we can raise some funds for these outfits we're going to need. To construct that robot leg. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Darla's like, oh, just get on with it. I'm tired and hungry and I'm tired of this bullshit. If you're going to shoot, just get on with it. And, uh, and, and honey, I don't know what you're thinking because if, if he lets you get that shotgun, he knew very well that you, can, you aren't going to do anything with it because he left it there for a reason. And all of a sudden, what's he do? He starts beating the shit out of Darla again, and he literally throws her on the floor and puts his foot on her neck like he's going to kill her. Yeah, he like starts like full on like pressing down on her throat with that goddamn robot leg, and it, like you think she's going to die for a second. Um, and like Renee has had this like moment where she's kind of like she's trying to be a stand up final girl, but it's really not quite landing yet. Like she's not, uh, she's not doing an awful job, but like her dialogue is like very much like. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and then and then to counter, Matthew Mahonike is like, I'm going to shoot me. Do it. <laughs> yeah, she's not very assertive in this moment. It's just, uh, yeah. And as he's like choking poor Darla there on the floor, Jenny is like bagging Heather to get up. And Heather is like, can't get up there's like blood all over the floor and she's like i can't get up well i don't know if she can talk i don't know if her tongue's being bitten out i don't know but she's not getting up uh and as uh, jenny turns around back around vilmer grabs the gun barrel and like puts it in his mouth and he's like screaming eh! and she actually pulls the trigger but of course nothing happens the gun isn't loaded at least that round isn't because he grabs the gun from her and fires it and the second shot actually goes off and busts the window and then she takes the opportunity to, to run out of the house. 
she gets in gar- she gets in Darla's car, and as she's pulling away, he Vilmer jumps from the roof onto the hood of the car. Okay, but how? I don't know. That's that was my question. How did he get? Like, first of all, that robot leg. Like, how is he getting up that staircase with that robot leg? Second of all, like that is a very just a, in general, it's a quick transition from that room to that car and and back in that car out. Like he is up on that roof, ready to go. Jumps down on the car. Stays on the hood. He's trying to grab her. She's trying to speed away. It's all too brief. It's very brief because she's distracted. She knocks him off the vehicle. She attempts to drive over him, but you don't see her go over the body. And she is driving and the hood goes up on the car and it distracts her. So she crashes into like like um, a piece of like uh, farm equipment or something. And so the car is stuck. She gets out to examine it, and he reaches out from under the car and grabs her by the ankles. So what I'm assuming is that when she ran over him, he just grabbed onto the bottom of the vehicle. I'm thinking, I guess, doesn't make sense. No, I guess we just have to go with that because he's able to grab her, knock her out, and gets her back in the house. Now we get uh, a transition shot of Leatherface putting on the red lipstick. God damn it. Much, Much like Jenny did at the beginning of the film. And he's donning his black... Nighty. This outfit, costume number three, it's a doozy. Tumbling dark hair, a black negligee. It's a lot of things, but it's definitely not scary. And what's even less scary about this is with this ensemble, whereas with Mama's family, he literally was like acting like an old woman. He was like hunched over and like in the character. Now he's very Elizabeth Taylor. Everything he does with his like I think he's got painted nails too, I'm pretty sure. But everything he does is very like dramatic. Lots of hand movements, uh, lots of hands around the face, touching on his jaw and neck, playing with his hair, pouting his f- fake skinned lips. It's strange. It's a choice I did not anticipate uh, when I first saw it, and it does not do anything to make this character any more intimidating. Yeah, I don't like this particular getup for for Leatherface. It just it doesn't it doesn't work. It does not make him scary. Um, it actually just I don't I don't know what they were thinking. I really don't. I wish they would not have gone this direction with the character because yeah, he just doesn't it loses all effectiveness. I mean, Leatherface. Let's be honest, Leatherface. You know, in the in the first film, you know, Leatherface in general is one of the more intimidating slasher villains out there. You know, the hulking, I mean, think of this big hulking guy with a chainsaw wearing people's faces. That is fucking terrifying. And Leatherface has always been, to me, one of the scarier, more intimidating figures. But not now. I mean, not in this film. Not when you're putting him in this getup. It's just, it's not, I don't know what they were thinking. Anyway, um, they, Darla go, it cuts back to Darla now. She is in the kitchen and she's telling Vilmorgan that he better be nice to her. And then they violently like start making out on the counter. Oh, it is a passionate makeout session. Uh, this is when she takes the remote from him, right? And she's yeah. Control- okay. So first of all, she's had a costume change. She's now in her evening wear. Sexy purple strappy dress. I like it. Very of the era very mid-90s her hair is all up and so they're kind of jabbing at each other she's making she's heating up the pizzas and then she gets his controller like like for his leg and she starts you know making it do things and I, apparently this turns him on uh because he immediately just starts 
making out with her hardcore and she is all for it. They're on the table. They're licking on each other's faces. He's thrusting on her. She's making his leg kick up and down. And then she's sashays away with pizza in hand. She's like, don't let the pizza get cold. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. She's says. like, yeah, it's like dinner time. And they go into this, they go into the um, dining room. And this is, I suppose, I suppose this is supposed to replicate the, you know, the dining room scene, the famous dining room scene from the first one, all the, all these random dead people <laughs> are seated around the table. As is what I take to be it, their. Is that grandpa? Yes. Here's okay. He looks like fucking Herman Munster. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> Here's my problem. Grandpa, to the average viewer, it's just another body. To the to someone who maybe somehow, some way thought, I'm gonna watch this specific Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie before watching any others. They're gonna watch this movie. First of all, they're gonna say, What the fuck am I watching? Second of all, when it gets to this scene, they're not gonna understand that this is in some way supposed to be representative of the character of Grandpa from the original film, who has always been this silent figure that I don't know if he's dead or not, but somehow, like, he, he sometimes he moves, sometimes he sucks blood out of fingers. Like, I don't exactly know what Grandpa's story is, but he's always been a thing, and I appreciate him as that. For him to be in this family does not logically make sense to me. And even if it is supposed to be Grandpa, I will say that he's certainly not utilized in any way to make that clear. All it is is that he kind of looks like him. Yeah, and literally he's in the movie for like five seconds and then you don't see him again. He just sits. He yeah. does nothing. He yeah. just sits. So, so they have Jenny at the end of the table. She's passed out. They put her in a better dress at least. Yeah, with all those like sparkles and silver on it. I do like that dress. A few fake slaps to the face <laughs> awakens Jenny who takes in her surroundings and she sees all these bodies and unconscious Heather. Um, an elegantly dressed Leatherface who nods to her uh, and is not at all scary in any way. And so she begins to scream and Leatherface starts to like join in the screaming, but he's like scolded. <laughs> and then he, and he's like, oh, he's like pissed off about it. And so he like pouts like a lady. He like, just like looks off to the side and is like, mm, I'm mad. And like, and again, it's just not at all scary. Darla, and, and there is a, a brief conversation between Darla and Jenny where Jenny's like, why are you doing this? And Darla's like, well, you don't understand. He put something in my head and all he has to do is push a button and my head will explode. And Renee Zellweger's like, she does it back. And they're like, they kind of chuckle. And apparently Vilmer does not like their interaction because he violently grabs Jenny and says that Leatherface wants a new face and he wants Jenny's face. And this is when Renee Zellweger, I think really gets, comes to her stride with her final girl, you know, persona because she slaps him not once, twice and very aggressively assertively says, don't you fucking touch me. Don't you dare put your fucking hands on me. I'm like, you go, girl. You go, Renee Zellweger. One of the things that is coming up here is that it's pretty clear that while she's annoyed, upset, uh, furious about the loss of her friend, I guess friends at this point, because I'm sure she's aware the others are dead, she's not scared anymore. And that does become a major playing factor here. She's pissed off, but she is not scared. And yes. she's over, and he's aware of it, and he's pissed, and he is not happy about it. His main goal is that he wants Jenny to be terrified, and it's just not landing because everyone is such a bumbling fool in this household. Nobody can really 
provoke that out of her anymore. She knows it. She knows that everyone in this household is, in a way, weaker uh, than than she is. Is in a way uh, has no control over the situation anymore. They're all kind of fumbling with each other. They're too distracted with one another to even really properly target and intimidate Jenny. And so she kind of gets the upper hand here, which I do appreciate that. I like that she's finally done and she's like, fuck it. And then uh, Leatherface starts to give like an Elizabeth Taylor level performance. And she's like, you sit the fuck down. And and Leatherface is not pleased. He's very (laughs) upset about it. But I, I like that she grabs the situation by the balls. Well, she tells, she says, if you're going to fucking kill me, kill me because I'm tired of your guys' bullshit. This is fucking bullshit. You're not scary. You're a fucking asshole. I, she, she lets him have it. And you're right. It pisses him off to the point where he grabs a hammer and bashes W in the head with it, apparently killing him, and then grabs his knife and starts like slashing his chest with it. And then he gets a bottle of lighter fluid Pours it on poor Heather's back, who is still hanging in, hanging on to her life by a thread, apparently. And he sets her back on fire. And she just gets up and runs into a wall and falls over. And goddamn Darla gets a fire extinguisher and just puts her, puts her out. And she says, now why'd you have to do that? You know I can never take that smell out of my clothes. Like, and then Heather is like still alive, let's be clear. After all of this, even after being set on fire, Heather is still somehow living at this point but not for long and so all of this nonsense is happening there's all this commotion jenny is basically prepared to take make a run for it at this point she's really kind of getting a grasp of the situation and there's the sound of a car honking outside and they go to the door they open the door and there's these two mysterious suited men who appear out of nowhere and they look very much not part of this universe it's very weird one of them does not have sideburns um and they enter the house and they definitely have a control over the situation because for once Vilmer seems very intimidated and so the men enter the dining room specifically the one man taking lead the shorter one uh and he walks in he kind of takes everything in he's very disgusted with the sight of everything and he proceeds to start comforting Jenny who does not know how to respond to him and he starts to promise her that things are going to change Yes, and he scolds Vilmer and is like demanding that Vilmer answer him to tell him that he understands that all of this, what's what's happened, what's unfolding is disgusting. And he's like, tell me you understand. And Vilmer's like, you can tell he's really mad. And finally he's like, yeah, I fucking understand. And yeah, and then this guy proceeds to go back into the room with Jenny and unbutton his shirt and his entire like, torso area is like carved up and he has like these huge ring piercings in his stomach it's real fucking weird and it definitely does not feel appropriate in this film appropriate meaning like it just is is so far off from where this franchise has ever been going or trying to go or what it's trying to accomplish um and and if i've had any gripes over the course of the film this one by far takes the cake for me well, I don't even know who this guy is supposed to be, but he's he's talking to he, when he when he's talking to Vilmer, he's like, "Our sole purpose is to create horror, horror. You understand that horror, not all this." And I just I don't know who this guy is supposed to be. So is this supposed to be like the the, the one of the guys that controls everything? And are we supposed to believe now that 
this entire Texas Chainsaw Massacre family and what they have been doing over the course of the last 30 years is because they're being controlled by these ominous, unknown people. I've heard theories about this movie that they're trying to almost lean into like a men in black kind of conspiracy, you know, like that. But it's not it's not right for this franchise. It doesn't feel like I said, appropriate. Like it's not something that this franchise ever needed. And so the whole thing that this guy is kind of alluding to is that his, their whole purpose of existing is to ensure that people understand the, the, the feeling of true horror and that uh, Vilmer and his family have been basically hired by them to ensure that and they are failing. They're not doing a proper job. So apparently true horror consists of this man unbuttoning his shirt, revealing his uh, his engraved torso and pierced nubbins i don't even know it's not nipples because it's too low but it's something and licking faces he starts licking on renee zellweger's face just lapping on her face and she's screaming but she's more just disgusted but i don't like is that true horror because like i mean i would not be pleased but i would just be like do please do not lick me like i don't know you i'm not familiar with you i wouldn't consider that true horror but i would consider that to be uh rather aggressive and a little too a little too soon (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Leatherface dressed as Mama Harper and, you know, and, and in a nightie isn't true horror that either. That is not true horror at all. I don't know what these fuckers think true horror is. They definitely need to get uh, some lessons. Maybe they take some classes from this man in his establishment so they can understand the meaning of true horror. But I also don't feel this man either has the idea of what true horror is because nothing he does to Renee Zellweger is, is at all horrifying. It's just uncomfortable yeah he licks her face a bunch of times and then he just leaves he leaves when he leaves velmer is this is when velmer takes the knife and starts slashing his uh his chest and stuff because velmer has a very like aggressive reaction to being stood up to he he lashes out when jenny stands up to him and now he lashes out after this gentleman has been very assertive and aggressive towards him so what he does is he cuts his his chest a bunch of times with a with his pocket knife and then he proceeds to use his mechanical leg to finally off poor heather he crushes her head with his mechanical leg again this is off camera you see nothing you hear the sound of it the audio you see his face as he's biting down on his teeth and breathing through it as he's pushing down on her skull. But you don't see a single drip of blood from this. No, this film, this film has zero gore in it. Zero blood. Even a very odd choice to make this film virtually goreless. I mean, you get nothing. Everything is off screen. It's just, it's puzzling. I mean, this was the mid nineties. You would think that they would, would lean into uh, the gore a little bit more. It's, it's odd. Uh, anyway, so Jen gets up and runs. She runs into a room, tries to get out of a window, and Vilmer goes in and gets her, throws her back on the kitchen floor. Leatherface has his chainsaw and is like threatening her with it, like buzzing it towards her. She's able to get a hold of Vilmer's remote for his leg and make it go into like high gear where his leg literally starts going ballistic and he can't do anything. And she uses this opportunity to get out of the house, to run out of the house. Yeah, it's a very long, drawn-out sequence of him like grabbing at her and grabbing at her and grabbing at her. And no one's really doing anything to help him. There's chaos everywhere, but she still manages to get the upper hand and keeps controlling his leg until she can get out the door. Um, But she does manage to, to make a sprint and get out of the house, which 
I, I do like that she is consistently for this whole final arc making good choices. Oh, she gets out. She runs, 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 runs. And now we get this random um, RV with this lovely elderly couple who neither can act their way out of a paper bag. It's Mrs. They call each other Mrs. Spottish and Mr. Spottish. And she she very much is very proud of these two Bloody Marys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah as he's driving along she's made these two they're in like the kind of they look like you got them in vegas you know those gigantic <laughs> fucking like three foot long containers and there's like seven pieces of celery sticking out of them full hamburgers hanging <laughs> off of them no but so she you know she brings them in with a big smile on her face like mr spanish um and then immediately you see jenny running alongside the vehicle and she's like don't let her in don't stop but then she sees what the woman describes to be, there's a monster chasing her. <laughs> yes, which it is. I mean, this hulking man in this black negligee is rather uh, d- distracting. I'll say that. Very distracting. He does have a chainsaw. But they do manage to get Jenny into the RV. It is brief. Though. Yeah, I love it. There's a monster with a chainsaw chasing her. And they get her in. And all of a sudden, it's it, super quick. Now, all of a sudden, Leatherface is on the truck that Vilma is driving. And I don't know how. I don't either. They're trying to recreate the opening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, where Leatherface is hanging off the back of the truck, chainsaw on the poor RV, uh, as the these this poor elderly couple is just, Mr. Spottish, go, Mr. Spottish. And they're able to run the RV off the road, so it like crashes and flips over. So I want to know, Roger, did this poor elderly couple die? I'm assuming they died. I mean, I'm... I mean, they were already driving, drinking Bloody Marys. They kind of brought it on themselves. But yeah, I mean, I do feel awful. They really deserved a little bit more. At least they deserved a moment like the original semi-truck driver in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, who simply just ran off and to never be seen again. At least you saw him running away. These fuckers, you never see them get out. But you do see Renee Zellweger in that dress manage to climb out of that RV, and she starts running along this dirt road. And... Somehow, Vilmer does manage a full sprint, even with that robotic leg. And he's chasing her, but it's short-lived because out of nowhere, a bright yellow plane appears and it swoops up into the sky. It's like a, it's like a one-person plane. Not sure who it is. Who I don't is know it? Who, I don't know who it is. I don't know if it's behalf on the man in black. I don't know if it's a random individual flying through the sky who just saw the commotion and decided they're going to help. I like to think that's the case. This unsung hero who comes <laughs> in out of nowhere. But manages to, as Vilmer is chasing after Jenny, and Leatherface is in the background chasing as well, the plane strategically swoops down and uses its blade to kill Vilmer. Like, it is very well executed. This man must be a, like, a prize fighter jet pilot because this is wild. It doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever that he manages to kill Vilmer with his plane, but he does. Though Vilmer is seen in a pool of blood, you don't actually see the wound. So I don't know how that, like, he would be sawed in half. I'm sorry. That's what I was... That's what I was thinking. If you get if you get hit in the head with a plane propeller, I'm sorry, that is going to decapitate. There'd be you. nothing. There'd be nothing but pulp. There'd be nothing. Yeah. yeah, it'd be yeah. So, but we literally just see Vilmer laying there, his head's full intact, and there's just like, and it's not even that big of a pool of blood. No, it's it's so understated and like, and then the plane never comes back. Like that's it. Like out it. Like this is the finale. This is the climax. This is the big final moment. Mystery plane shows up out of nowhere, swoops down, 
kills Vilmer, flies away. Uh, Leatherface is shocked and appalled by this and dramatically stops to clutch the side of his face as he screams in horror uh, as, you know, Vilmer dies in front of them. Uh, and then, to top it all off, that goddamn stretch limo shows back up and Jenny, without hesitation, jumps inside, causing Leatherface to become wrought with anger and begins to dramatically recreate the iconic chainsaw like spinning sequence from the original film but to a far lesser degree it's nowhere near as intimidating especially because he is currently dressed as a woman wearing that black negligee and the bright red lipstick yeah so jenny gets in the vehicle and it is the 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 gentleman that showed up and licked her face and he apologizes to her. He's like, I'm so sorry that this went awry. It was it's supposed to be more of a spiritual experience. And she's like, fuck you. And he asks her, would you rather go to the police station or the hospital? And he, apparently they take her to the hospital because it cuts to the hospital. And she is being, you know, there's a cop talking to her and telling her that they're going to get to the end of what or the bottom of what happened and figure everything out. And for her not to worry. And there is this random woman that is wheeled by her on a gurney who just stares at her do you know who that woman is i don't i was at, i was gonna ask it's you it's marilyn who is burns this? it's marilyn fucking burns. is it is it really it's sally hardesty that's her oh cameo oh my god how okay. offensive though like that's all like that's it the last moment of the film she jenny looks up and for a split second you see a few frames of marilyn burns looking up oh from a gurney like that's not how it. you treat a, a final girl properly literally never knew that okay it does it doesn't make any sense no because why is she in this hospital i mean that was thir- she she battled leatherface 30 years ago i know i think it's supposed to imply that she is tied to a gurney because she went mentally insane. okay oh okay see i okay now i feel stupid because i literally never knew that but i guess i've never really this is this film is not high on my radar so i've never really uh studied it that much but yeah i had no idea who that was i was like who is this and why is she staring at jenny and why when the gentleman's like do you know who that is okay so i guess yeah, that makes it a little more... No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. No. It doesn't make any sense. But whatever. Okay, okay. I learned something new. That's kind of cool. But yeah, uh, really shitty cameo. Strap Marilyn Burns down to a gurney and Wheeler by Renee Zellweger for five seconds. Okay. But I guess it's it's no more offensive than what they did to the Sally Hardesty character in the Netflix sequel that just came out at least she was able to wield a gun in that <laughs> this one the poor woman's tied to a, tied to a gr- <laughs> all you see are eyes <laughs> like you just see you just see her pupils and that's it for like yeah. about 10 seconds yeah and you know and then we the film ends on a note of leatherface twirling around out in the middle of the field in his black nighty and the film ends as the sun rises above the texas skyline uh yeah uh, and then, thankfully, we did not get any more Texas Chainsaw Massacre films until the remake, which actually we both enjoy. And then that that kick that kick started a whole bunch of other sequels and prequels. And Sub-cars. I mean, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> let's be honest here: the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, as far as the big horror franchises out there, is probably the worst. Yeah, it's very spotty. Very spotty. Yeah. There's a few glimmers of light. The original, the first remake, but overall, like it's, I mean, this is a film that really does, does its best. The simpler you keep it, the less convoluted you make it, the more impactful it's going to be. The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was great because it didn't have to overthink. 
But once it came to the second and the third, and they're trying to find more motivation and reasoning and purpose, it doesn't need it. It doesn't need it. It's just let it be what it is. Let these people be backwoods, living in the middle of nowhere, rural Texas rednecks who have a dark secret that they eat people, turn them into sausages. That's all I need. I don't need men in black. I don't need torso piercings. I don't need airplane murders. Like, just keep it simple. Yeah, they eliminated the whole cannibalism subplot in this film. Um, yeah, and then the whole the whole story with the men in black is just absurd. It does not fit this franchise. They tried that with Halloween, you know, Halloween six. And it, and that is considered one of the worst sequels of the bunch. It just, you don't need to do that. Just keep it simple. It's a slasher movie. We want to see people being murdered with a chainsaw. That's why we're tuning into a film called the Texas chainsaw massacre. I don't want to have all this conspiracy theory shit. You know, I, I mean, I know people really gave the the sequel, the, the recent sequel, a lot of flack, but I would take that over this film any day. At least Leatherface is fucking intimidating and brutal in that film. He's not wearing a, a nighty. He's not dressed up as fucking, you know, Blanche from the Golden Girls. He is intimidating. I, I, I'm sorry, this film, well, I got a little bit, I will admit, I, I got a little bit more enjoyment out of it then I remember only because there are glimmers of this film that I think are are good. And then it just falls flat. Like I, I said, I love the Renee Zellweger chase scene. But overall, I mean, this is a pretty grating film to sit through. And it, it, it just shits all over the Texas Chainsaw Massacre lore that, it, that had been established before this film. So, I mean, I guess good on them for trying something different. But no, I know. But here's the thing is, I mean, being involved with the original film as heavily as Kim Hinkle was, it just again, as I said, as we started the podcast off, it just baffles me, baffles me that he went this route with the franchise. It just makes zero sense. He must have had a beef or he must have been doing it out of spite. I don't know. He cannot. He could not have seriously thought he was making a good a a good movie period or b a good texas chainsaw massacre sequel right it goes to show i think just how important and pivotal toby hooper was to creating that universe and what went on within it um i think really what what suffers here is is how big the movie goes at times i mean certainly the original one had big moments like marilyn burns tied to that table flipping her shit but they saved it for the moments of true terror uh, here, it just it kind of always is uh, over the top and at times it feels sticky. There's so much, um, uh, I don't even know if it's intentional. I don't want to say intentional comedy, but you're, I mean, don't tell me you're going to put a chainsaw wielding maniac in a goddamn uh, mama's family costume and, and tell me that wasn't intended to be somewhat humorous. And if it wasn't, then you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films work best when they, when they, when they avoid any comedic tone and go with the dark, brutal tone that the franchise, that the first film is known for, because part two is kind of the same thing. I I can't really sit through part two because it's, I find it grating and I don't like the, the comedic tone that flows through the film. Uh, And then three went back to the kind of dark, brutal tone. And that one's, well, it's not a good movie. Um, At least it's feels like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. Yeah, this certainly does not. And then this one, yeah, this one does not. And then the remake at least went right back to the roots of what makes a good Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. So, yeah, that is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation, which again, that tagline makes zero sense because nothing. (laughs) How is this the next generation? Whatever. Um, 
Yeah, so we we made it through somehow, some way. And if you want to hear us review a Texas Chainsaw Massacre we do actually like, I can't recommend the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake enough. I recently actually listened to that one when when I knew that we were going to have to review this title, um, and I really actually felt strangely nostalgic listening to it because. Uh, we gush over it. We really do. And there's some fantastic performances in it. Um, the cast is lovely. And it's uh, really just a great film, in my opinion, beginning to end. And shows how uh, something within this franchise, even within the remakes, uh, how it can be done right if it's in the right hands. Unfortunately, this film was not. Uh, and thus, it, it does ultimately fail. But hey, you know what? It made for an interesting choice. Thank you, Cameron, for making us go through this again. <laughs> episode 27 is the one where we we review the texas chainsaw massacre remake and you gotta love an oiled up mike Vogel. Don't we all <laughs> and we and mm. we do love an oiled up matthew mcconaughey just not yes we do when he's delivering the dialogue in this film uh but with that being said troy I, if i'm going to go through it with anyone i'm going to go through it with you so thanks for going through this uh traumatizing experience of watching this movie again with me yeah, guys. So if you enjoyed the episode, uh, give us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. And we're going to surprise you next week. We're not telling you what our pick is because this is fan pick week. We're trying to surprise you. So if you want to know, again, check out the Patreon. Yeah, absolutely. And until then, we're just going to tell you one thing. One of you fucking picked it. Yes, indeed. And it may, yeah. Well, stay tuned. It's a good one. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Good night.